Prepare to unlock your potential and conquer the business realm with Boss Uncaged. Join S.A. Grant, a seasoned entrepreneur, digital marketing expert, and branding specialist as he delves into exclusive interviews, strategies, and success stories from founders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and executives. Guiding you from overcoming challenges to dominating diverse media platforms, Boss Uncaged is your ultimate source for business and entrepreneurial insights. Subscribe, like, and share now to elevate your business game where the spirit of the uncaged boss runs free. Meet the visionary behind the Boss Uncaged Educational Network and Omnimedia, the one and only boss beast, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So I had the pleasure of having some off-board conversations with, with Nathaniel. We were just kind of talking about what his plans are, and he has an upcoming birthday, and he's been traveling the world pretty frequently. So with all of that, right, like now we're going to have this particular episode that we're going to kind of talk about what he does and why he does it. So you know I like to give whoever I'm talking to a particular nickname. So this episode, the nickname I'm going to give him is the Midcon Boss. And I'm sure he'll understand why I'm calling him that. So the floor is yours. I want you to talk about a little bit more about you and what would you look looking forward to talk to uh, talk about today? Yeah, well thanks, SA. We uh as you as you mentioned, you know, we focus on an area that we call the midcontinent, sometimes midcon, and uh it's an area that is uniquely defined by the industries and the fact that my partners and I have our experience building companies here. And that's where we spend our time investing in high tech startups. So that's, that's what we're about and really defining a new market. So I, I think that's definitely very interesting considering that you guys are kind of like in the oil and gas economy, like that's, that's the region that you guys live in. So like what made you kind of think about, okay, well, Obviously, you had your hands in oil, and then you kind of transferred over to tech. Why was that transition something that you wanted to do? Yeah, it was kind of a, it's a personal story that also is, I think, a broader story for our region. And yeah, because Midcontinent does refer to the, one of the most prolific oil and gas regions in the U.S. It's been around for over a hundred years. If you have, I have a picture in the background here, you know, showing showing some of the activity in the oil and gas hundred years ago. But that really defined our economy for the last 100 years. But it's our conviction that something else, you know, led by technology will define the next 100 years. And my personal story is I'm third generation oil and gas. I'm the eighth person in my family to work in it. I had my own companies. I had my successes, my failures. But I learned how to use technology to innovate in a legacy industry. And now we're doing that as investors. So I think the name of your company is definitely an interesting one. And if, if I'm, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was kind of like a hybrid of, of a coffee, right? So again, you're kind of talking about staying awake, actually having that caffeination in, in your system. So I want you to kind of talk about the name of the company and why did you choose that route to name it that in the first place? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. So a cortado is a type of coffee. It's a, you know, a double shot espresso with steamed milk. It's what my partner, Mike Brody was drinking when he filled out the SEC paperwork. So it was almost just kind of like, you know, fill in the blank uh, kind of deal you know, or to be determined, but it ended up sticking because it it's a wink and a nod to the fast paced caffeine fueled culture of startups. And it's kind of a fun word and uh, it's unique, um, but it really does capture that, you know, we are scrappy entrepreneurs ourselves. And those are the kind of people that we're investing in. I mean, Cortado is only three years old. And so we've had to go through that entrepreneurial journey of, of starting a, a first of its kind VC firm so that's that's really kind of honoring. It's it's a fund that's by founders for founders, 
and honoring that 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 grind that startup culture. So let's break that down. So you're talking about like from founders for founders, and I want you to kind of talk about like your investment. I think on your website it says precede to investment stages, right? So I want you to kind of talk about these three stages and and what's included and how are you helping people to find the right funding. Yeah, so that's that's our sweet spot is your precede, seed, Series A, and to break it down maybe in, in more familiar terms, we look for companies where they've developed their initial product. It doesn't have to be you know the fully developed software program or the fully developed invention, but a minimum viable product, an MVP as we refer to it, something that they can take to customers, they can try it out, they can get feedback. But most of our the companies we invest in are pre-revenue. They may have some early pilot revenue, but they're going to be like sub one million in revenue, and that's really where we spend our time. And that's where a company's going from: is this idea going to work? We're getting some early validation. To you know, we want to be along for the ride all the way to now they're you know becoming a national, nationally recognized, you know, big customers. And so that's the stage that we focus on, and the types of companies, all high tech. All B2B, so the companies we invest in, their customers or our businesses. But examples would be areas where we really thrive and that we focus on are energy, logistics, supply chain. And then we also invest in life sciences, areas like healthcare and biotech, you know, because we have a lot of background there. I mean, we ourselves have grown companies in those areas. And so that's why we, we really leverage that background to underwrite our investments now. Hmm. So I want, I want to time travel back, right? And I want to paint this picture. I want you to think about denim overalls with a red handkerchief around your neck mm-hmm. and you're sitting on your, your dad, Charles's lap. And again, mm-hmm. like going back to you were raised essentially in a farm, you were kind of raised in, in oil. Did you ever think back then that you could potentially be doing something outside of what you were raised in? Not really. I mean, that's certainly, you know, I, I, all I've known my whole life is, you know, oil and gas. And, you know, my, my grandfather started a company in the fifties and my dad started his company in the eighties. I started mine in, in the 2010s. And, you know, that was, you know, my degree. Those were my, my internships. You know, I may have thought that there would be something else you know, beyond the horizon, but, you know, but certainly my career I thought would be defined. By oil and gas, and it, interestingly, I mean, I, I was I was in oil and gas much longer than I've been in venture capital at this point. But yet, it's you know the transition. There's some similarities. There's some things that are familiar, but but a lot that is brand new. But yeah, it's it's not it's not the path that I necessarily would have thought had you gone back in time and asked a, a freshly graduated Nathaniel if uh, what, what he's going to be doing when he was you know turning forty two. So I think it's definitely interesting. I mean, obviously you're talking about your multi-generations down that, that that particular pipeline. And obviously there's a sense of pride, right? I mean, I think there was even a picture with you on social media and you were wearing your grandfather's oilman belt, right? So I mm-hmm. want you to kind of like, like talk about that. Like obviously you probably have conversations with your family members now. Are they more so proud that you're stepping out or they're more so kind of trying to figure out if you're ever going to come back into the oil business? I'd say, you know, unequivocally proud and uh, excited for me. You know, I mean, my dad's the, the closest to it, right? And so I, I worked for him formally as an adult, but I, I guess I could also say I worked for him when I was a child, you know, being out, uh, going out to the well site. He would have me paint the stock tanks, which is like the big tanks that hold oil. 
which is, by the way, is like not actually a thing. But if you're trying to keep a, a nine-year-old occupied in the field and hand him a paintbrush and tell him to paint a giant tank. And so he's probably the closest to it. And you, one would expect would have the most personal connection to wanting to see that continued. But, you know, I worked with him. We actually sold the family business about 10 years ago. And then, you know, I, I continued on. I've started my own companies, had some successes, had some failures. But I, I can confidently say, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure when he does, as he's watching this, you know, he'll be able to attest to it. Proud that kind of, you know, hung out my own shingle to, to do something that's, you know, uniquely me. And I think that is maybe, you know, indicative of, of what is next for, you know, for, for the region and, and, for, you know, for my family and kind of defining a new chapter. Wow. So, I mean, I, I was actually these questions because I mean, obviously, like your, your family is definitely prominent in, in what they do and how they do it. But obviously, you've been credited with a lot of accolades as well. I mean, you've been named number 10 out of 50 most powerful young pros in Oklahoma City. So I want you to kind of talk about like, what did that mean for you when you saw your picture in, in a newspaper next to like NBA players? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, well, it, it is nice. And whatever you're ranked on a list like that, if you can have your picture next to an NBA player, then uh, that, that's a lucky, uh, lucky situation. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, I don't think anybody would tell you it, it doesn't feel nice. You know, everybody's going to say it's, it feels nice to, to get accolades and to have your picture and, and, you know, uh, in the newspaper and, and magazines. And, and that certainly is nice to, to see that happen, I think. But for, you know, for myself and for Cortado, you know, getting any kind of attention towards what we're doing is, it's good for, it's good for business. It's good for our team. I certainly get a lot of pride when I see other of our team members, you know, getting, you know, well recognized or, or well do recognition for what they do. But, you know, for us, since we are doing something, new and unique in the area, we really spend a lot of time in storytelling and explaining and teaching, but also learning. I mean, we, you know, we, I guess it's like being an elementary school Spanish teacher. It's like, as long as you're like a week ahead of the students in the lesson plan, then you're okay. You know, we recognize fully that there's lots for us to to be learning. I mean, as investors, but I also just mean, and as we work with the founders of our portfolio companies, they're the ones that are that are creating amazing things, and we're the ones that are blessed to be able to invest in them. So, as we can bring that positive attention to us, then that's that's good for telling that story and communicating. What is this thing, venture capital, that's happening in Oklahoma and the Midcontinent region? Why does it matter? You know, why do we have we have a hundred investors now in our fund? And and by the way, they're from all over the, the country, and some of them have never even been to the region. So, I think that's really how I look at it is the recognition is is nice and it kind of gives you a nice feeling but it, it really matters as you're trying to tell a story and do something new so i mean obviously i, I think like dipping your feet in the water right i mean obviously coming from oil it definitely has money associated to it and so i want you to kind of talk about like when the, the mayor of oklahoma kind of came to you and appointed you with almost three quarters of a billion dollars right to kind of help the city infrastructure was that more so kind of coming from you, like your background and your your history, or is that more so kind of you stepping into the, the the funding space and he's crediting you for that versus what you were known for before? Yeah, that's a good question, and, and, uh, and you know, thanks for looking into these things. You know, these are fun stories to tell because yeah, you're referring to Oklahoma City has a tr- a transformative series of projects called metropolitan area projects where the citizens get to vote on what they want to see built, and that was. 
that, that, that project, I was appointed to join the board. I think it really was more of a reflection of for me to help kind of represent other people in Oklahoma City. And, and so I, I don't want to give myself, you know, too much credit because I mean, I, this was, you know, I, I was, I was a young pup then. I was in my twenties and, uh, and I, I got very lucky to be appointed by the mayor to serve on that board. And I was on the board for 12 years. And I, but I think the importance and the brilliance of, of the city leadership and the, and the mayor is really taking a diverse group of people to represent the city. And I, I, I did and do have some background in infrastructure and logistics and civic projects, but really we were very fortunate to get to work with, you know, an incredible group of, you know, contractors and uh, engineering firms and architects that were building out this, these quality of life projects. But yeah, to answer your question, I think it was really saying, you know, how can, you know, that I, I represent some part of the city and I'm a taxpayer and I have some, some background, but at the end of the day, I want to help build the kind of city where my family will grow up. And that's maybe the most important thing. I have three kids. You know, I want to, I want to build the kind of city that, that, you know, we can raise a family and, but also where there's lots of opportunity for them and for others. And, uh, and so I, I think that's part of how they put together this, you know, this, this board that oversees such an important series of projects. I mean, obviously, I think with that definition, you're kind of defining roadmaps. And on your website, you talk about building roadmaps to growth. And that's kind of one of your strategies, right? So I want you to kind of talk about like, let's say it's a new tech company. They have something that's highly inspirational, something that's very motivational, something that can kind of change the world. What What are you building exactly in those roadmaps to help them to grow? Yeah. So we invest at that inflection point going from zero to one where you have you have the products, but maybe you're not you haven't had repeat sales yet. You're still kind of in that experimentation phase. A lot of times referred to as the, the go-to-market strategy. And so where we try to help is someone kind of thinking through what is the uh, the best market segment to focus on. Do you go after the big ones that are going to be a really great logo and get a lot of attention? Do you go after you know smaller customers that they don't move the needle as much, but they can close quickly? Do you do both? How do you spend your time? But then we also try to help hands-on with customer introductions. So many of our investors are also customers of our portfolio companies. You know, so recently, you know, when I, I asked one of our companies to to make a wish list of of customers, and you know, we happen to have connections with three quarters of the list of twenty five that that he provided, and I was able to you know make introductions. They, they get to do the, the hard work of actually selling their vision and, uh, and earning the business. But if we can do that, you know, if you do that, that step of just making that connection, because a lot of times if you're a startup founder, it's just hard to get a meeting. It's just hard to, you know, get taken seriously to get in the right room with the decision makers. So if we can help with that and help think through where is the best time to spend as we kind of develop this roadmap of go to market now, but then what does it look like in a year? And that's really how we approach it. So I want to kind of dive into to your history a little bit more. Obviously, like you're a military veteran. And I want to kind of talk about that moment when I think you took a picture. It was a, a picture of a graffiti piece. And it was about like the dissolving of USSR. So I want you to kind of talk about that moment when you were looking at that piece. How has that moment kind of influenced you to become who you are right now? Yeah, it was is a, it was a surreal moment because I was in Afghanistan and I, I was just a little lieutenant, but I, um, I got to tag along with a couple of our colonels 
And we were doing just kind of a self-guided tour of a, of the bombed out palace outside of Kabul. And, and I also, one of my, one of my degrees is in Russian language. And so I, I can read Russian, not nearly as well as I used to be able to, but I can read Russian, speak a little bit. And yeah, there was some Russian graffiti. It was celebrating the like new year, you know, like new year 1989 or whatever it was. Uh, and our, yeah, it was in the eighties. So like happy new year, 1980, whatever it was. And uh, that was graffiti there. And I guess it was, I mean, it, it's kind of a surreal moment where it's like, you know, history happens and you read about it and these geopolitical events that are so massive. And it's, I mean, think about now what's happening in, in the Middle East. They do have real human tolls, like real human lives. You know, that person that was that, that Soviet soldier that was graffitiing in that bombed out, you know, Afghan palace. That's just like this snapshot in time that's captured now for, for decades. So, you know, these, these huge, you know, conflicts and geopolitical like chess matches um, have a real human toll and, and that, you know, ripple through time. And so that, I think that was a moment that at the time it was just kind of like neat, but now maybe with some reflection and now that it's been you know, more than 10 years for me, it's a little bit more profound. And, uh, but it's, it's also a reflection of how fortunate I was to, to get to do that. I wanted to serve my country and I got to serve in a war zone. I got to work with our NATO allies, our Afghan allies, I got to tag along with colonels and generals and, you know, I, I, I learned a lot at, at the time. I probably didn't even know what all I was learning, but certainly influenced me in terms of, you know, confidence, in terms of being able to work with you know, very diverse people and having that perspective. So I'm happy that you, you brought up chess. I mean, chess is a hell of a segue. I mean, I know your dad's a chess player. I know your kids play chess and kind of plays into like the, the politics, right? So being that you're raising capital and you're raising funding, I mean, politics is always something that falls into that category, especially if you're talking about tens of millions of dollars. So I want you to kind of talk about, like, do you stage it to where you're, you're, you're like dealing with lobbyists or kind of like how do you kind of stage the political angle in the, the funding of what you're doing? Because that, that, I would think that's a major part. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, since we are developing an asset class that is not very familiar in the region, we do see a lot of value in working with civic and political leaders and helping to support this nascent ecosystem. And so we, we actually, I mean, we've, we have events with legislators. You know, we work with, we work on legislation that, that can help startups prosper, whether it's tax incentives for hiring engineers, you know, having a, a, a tax incentive for an incubator. And so we, we help start the verge, which is an independent. 501c3 supporting all stages of entrepreneurs. So if you can give what is really a small advantage in the grand scheme of things to a startup founder, it's actually huge for, you know, her or him and could be transformative in starting that company and getting to the next step. So we do spend a lot of time more than we would. Like if I were doing this in a more established VC hub, like the Bay area, that's already been all thought through. People have already, you know, worked on legislation and policies and there's already the, you know, the political, you know, that, that works, that works, you know, more or less been done. And whereas we feel like in this part of the country, it's very unfamiliar to policymakers. And actually I'm, I'm speaking on a panel with the, uh, the governor here soon about the growth of venture capital in the region. And so 
that's, that's really important to support what we do. And, and sure that sounds, you know, selfish, but like any business person, you're going to do things that help your business prosper. But guess what? When we do those things, the real beneficiaries are the startup founders who really represent the a broad variety of the community. And so you have first time founders that, that come from, you know, different parts of the community that are trying to get that first crack at economic opportunity and, you know, trying to be their own boss. And we love that. And so we want to support it. So we, we actually feel that it's time well spent if we can give them you know, a leg up through, through legislation or, or just support of the civic and political leadership. So I kind of want to talk about like with every success story, there's always another half, right? So obviously you're carrying the torch from, from your family, your dad's still around, but you know, potentially that can kind of come into the equation. You're taking your own leave and you're creating your own empire as well. You have three kids. I wanted to kind of want you to talk about like Amanda, like obviously she's part of this equation and she's probably carrying a lot of weight on the shoulders, considering that you're into politics, you're into technology, you're into capital, you're into like all these other things. How does that relationship work from the home front? Yeah, absolutely. I, I could not do anything that that I've been doing the last 10 years for that matter, not even just Cortado, if it weren't for my wife, Amanda. And so she's, I mean, so we, we've been married 17 years and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, so don't ask for marriage advice because you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. But somehow we made it 17 years. But she's you know, been the, you know, my rock. And and the fact that she's been able to hold down the home front, she's you know, very busy as well and serves on a number of boards and uh, has asked for different leadership opportunities. But the fact that there is that you know, stability and support and work, you know, working with the kids, it makes possible what I do. I wouldn't be able to be the risk taker or be the kind of person that can hop on a plane. And, you know, I've, I've been gone about two thirds of the time this, this over the past, you know, two months and I wouldn't be able to do that and jump on those opportunities if it weren't for, if it weren't for her. And so, you know, hats off to, you know, people that have people in their lives that uh, support them in, in so many powerful ways. And uh, so I'm very fortunate. So, I mean, obviously you come from an entrepreneurial background, like you're like, you know, if if there's generational as far as like wealth and, and, and understanding business, I think that you are the epitome of that representation. Right. So I want to kind of talk about March 2010, your firstborn, right? Maggie, Max, as you call her. I want you to kind of talk about like being that she's roughly about 13 years old right now. Are you instilling in her to kind of become an entrepreneur or is she showing any signs of stepping into that role, potentially taking over where you are or potentially stepping into, into the oil business? Yeah, great question. So as any father to a 13 year old daughter may, could maybe attest, I, I'm not sure if any of my, my, my advice currently makes its way through, but uh, I say that, I, you know, half jokingly, she's the kind of child who will resist any advice in the moment. But then like if you check in on her a day later, she'll be quietly doing the thing that you were saying is a good idea. So, uh, you know, I think that's, that's, that's maybe just how some personalities are. She is very independent. I mean, she is like the, she, I, in fact, I think it's called like high executive functioning. In other words, it's, it's kind of like psychology talk for somebody who is very self-motivated, like independent, responsible. I mean, she's just like a little adult, like, and, and so, so proud of her. And I think 
that that could transform into being an entrepreneur. I mean, she she has admitted that she thinks what I do in venture capital is cool. And she didn't admit to my face, but she admitted to, uh, to to Amanda that she thinks that venture capital is cool, and she's right, it is. So maybe I, I could see her doing that. I could absolutely see her being her own boss, being an entrepreneur, and she's like me in that she can really hone in on something and just dig deep. And when when she does that, she really excels. So I, I could I could see her going that path, oil and gas path. I don't I don't think there's not I don't think any of the three kids will will kind of pick that mantle back up. Um, but I, I could see, you know, I could see at least one of them getting into entrepreneurship broadly and maybe even specifically venture capital. Gotcha. So from the outside looking at, I would say at least two out of three of them, right? Cause I mean, obviously your middle child, your middle daughter, she has like a hustle mentality to her and she's very creative with it. I mean, I think it was a post that you posted about her selling Girl Scout cookies and it was during COVID and you have to think about it from the standpoint, from the outside looking in, you could sell lemonade, you could sell cookies, and usually you have to be there to sell it. But she put up a picture of her playing chess. She put up an envelope with money already in it. And then she mm-hmm. gave instructions. So would you not think that in that case, I would think that she is probably more so the budding entrepreneur coming out the family right now? She she is very creative. So if I if I you know, had to pick adjectives for each of the kids, then Lucy's would be creative. And creativity is, I think, a, a, a key, key element of being an entrepreneur. Because mm-hmm. when you're an entrepreneur, you need to be resourceful and figure out how to do a lot with a little and figure out how to turn a no into a yes or just go a different way entirely to get what you want. And I, so, yes, I think that, that, that her, you know, she, she actually has already said that she, you know, wants to be some kind of small business owner. Right, right now she's talking about owning a, a bakery. And, and she also wants to uh, like be an artist and own an art studio. And, and so she's already talking about it. So I think that creativity is, is percolating in different ways and it, it could be in the entrepreneurial way. Hmm. I think it's definitely fascinating that, that she wants to be a baker. Is that in relation to your, your wife's cousin, Zoe, that's a baker in New York? Is that the reason why that she kind of t- tapped into that or what? Man, you're like, you're like a CIA agent, man. You, you got good research. It's awesome. Yeah. So, and, and th- there are some bakers in our life, which is hilarious because I think I've made macaroni like four times. And that's the only thing I've ever, only kind of food I've ever prepared. And yeah, so I think there's just some influence there. And, but also, yeah, somehow Lucy just got on to baking. Like none of us in our, our immediate family are, are into baking, but yeah, sometimes you see another adult in your life doing that. We have a, we have a good friend, you know, who, who also has owns a bakery and at the Bradford house. And so uh, it's called Quincy Bake Shop, little plug. And so that's another influence. And we're like, maybe one day Lucy can, can intern at the, you know, at Quincy. So I think there are definitely are, are familial influences there. Wow. So let, let's just say we line up all your, your direct family members. We, we, we line up Amanda, the two girls and, and your young boy, and we ask them for one word each to describe you. What would you think the combination of those four words would be? I know at least one of my kids would choose funny. You know, you get less funny the older your, your kids get, but uh, at least one of them would choose funny, creative and hardworking, I think would, you know, they, they would pick some combination of, of those. Hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So like, I think with the journey that, that we've kind of depicted on this episode so far, like every time someone goes through something like this, there's always some kind of hurdle or some kind of landmark moment. So I want you to kind of think in time traveling 
aspect. If you can go back and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself at any given point in time in your life, when would you go back to and what would that conversation look like to kind of help you speed up to where you are currently right now? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question because, you know, sometimes it's like, man, I wish I could have learned that lesson earlier. But then if you shortcut the process, then you don't actually end up in the same spot. And so I guess I would maybe give myself advice early on in my career to don't think so linearly and, you know, be easier on yourself. And so what I mean is, you know, the, the linear part is it's tempting, at least with my temperament, I don't know about other people, but to, to think that success is a linear progression. And so you have to like kind of stack one credential on the other, on the other. And that's just not how it works. And so it took me probably 10 years longer to figure that out than what it should have. Blame it on my, you know, engineering background or, or, you know, whatever it is that the linear thinking, but being able to broaden your perspective, um, you know, now we travel a lot for, for work and, and, and outside of work, but that has given that gives perspective. I don't just mean like you get perspective when you see an amazing mosque or go to a museum or meet people from other cultures. I just mean distance from the thing that you're embedded in. So we all have our daily grind. We all have the things that we spend a ton of our time on and it seems all consuming. We have the comparison demons. You know, we always compare ourselves to somebody who is similar in our network. But then when you get outside of that and when you travel and put time and space, those you start to realize. You, you, it, it changed your mind mindset from doubling down on that thing that you were doing, trying to one up somebody or something and saying, like, what else do I like? And what else am I good at? Like, I want to be on offense. I want to be thinking about building the next great thing, not about the daily grind of the, these kind of comparison thoughts and like thinking that I need to, you know, then just progress to the next step and the next step. What about 10 steps from now? What about a whole other? series of stairs, you know? Uh, so I think some of that perspective is, is hard one. And it's hard to just tell yourself that even, you know, as a young person, it's hard to, to adopt that thinking. Hmm. I, th- I think that, that was a hell of a segue. You were talking about 10, ste- 10 steps ahead, right? So, I mean, in today's world, today's market, considering where you are saying that your company is roughly just, you know, underneath the five-year mark, where do you ideally see what you're doing right now, maybe five, 10 years from now? Yeah, I, you know, our vision for Cortado Ventures is to be a market leader in the mid-continent as an early stage investor. That means growing with the market. So as you know, we've, we've already grown four, uh, fivefold and I can expect to see, you know, further growth, but it's not just about the numbers. I also foresee us. We just, we just closed fund two. You know, I, I, want to see the day where it's fun 10 and where we have a deep bench of talent and are truly an institutional firm that has scaled decision-making and execution where we have other you know partners that take over in the future. And we have a firm that endures past when I'm done working and past when I'm done being you know in this world. And so truly a, a generational firm that has helped define and grow with this emerging domestic market that sometimes our, our investors refer to it. That's the vision. So, I mean, with that vision, obviously you, you, the key word in that phrase was, you know, going back to your name of being the mid-con boss, 
And obviously that's where your your home base is. But if I, if I remember correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, do you not have like like a joint venture or at least partnerships in the Far East? And obviously you've been to the Middle East many of times. So are you not essentially thinking about potentially branching out into the Eastern region of the world? Yeah, I, I, I could see how. So to, to answer that question, we did have a joint venture in China. And when I say we, not Cortado, in the oil and gas days, so years ago, we had a joint venture in China where we were really just consulting with uh, uh, China natural oil companies on, you know, transferring knowledge on how to develop shale, you know, certain kinds of oil and gas deposits. And that was an amazing experience. And to get to work abroad, I got to you know, publish papers in, and that was translated in Mandarin and, and published in, in, in China. I got to present, we hosted a conference and I got to make the first drilling prognosis for a, a horizontal well, a shale well in China. And so, and throughout my career, I've had lots of different international touch points, but really where I've landed and where, how we think about what we're doing at Cortado is we want to really focus our execution on the region. We want to really be focused as mid-continent investors. But then we want to leverage our national and international network to help our companies get global exposure. And so I don't want to cover the world in terms of as an investor, because it would just be a mile wide and an inch deep. I want to be deep as an, you know, executing as an investor, but then able to broaden a company's exposure. So that's how we want to leverage, you know, leverage our network. And so, and it's not just me on the team that, that has a lot of international connections, but, and my partner, Mike as well. But so I think that's how we view our, how we fit into everything. So kind of talking about MidCon some more, I mean, you had so many different opportunities. I mean, you were showcased in the newspaper, you you actually, you know, got access to that quarter of a billion dollars to, to kind of help that community out. I want you to also talk about like the smaller big things as well. Like you were a judge on Miss Oklahoma, right? You were a track national champion. You also mm-hmm. were on a talk show, right? So you were a talk show host. So I want to kind of talk like how do these kind of factor in it? Because talking to you now, you, you seem so humbled and, and so like low key and so focused. But those other three things comes with like a, a giant spotlight. How have you been mm-hmm. dealing? Yeah, it is pretty funny. Those are super interesting little factoids that sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, that, I did that. Yeah, I was, I was asked years ago to be a, an official judge from Miss Oklahoma, and uh, and luckily the request came through my wife because I think if I had sought that opportunity, <laughs> it would have had a different result. And and so I was like, yes, yes, I will do that. And it was just, yeah, I mean, I love you know having unique experiences like that. I mean, I, I got to be a volunteer translator at a orphanage in Russia, and I got to host a TV talk show, and all those things, all of those little snippets have like a background and have some kind of logical path as to how I got there. But they also are all reflective of my general temperament, which is I just, and I, I love new experiences. I love doing, you know, unique things. And maybe it's because I like to have a story to tell. It was just because I don't, I don't know anybody else who's done it. So that'd be cool to be the, the, the one of one. Yeah. And I think it just, it all stacks up to, you know, an interesting, more fulfilling life now, you know, and it's, I, it's it's easy not to get too full of myself because oh well I have children who constantly remind me I'm, <laughs> that I'm not all that, but yeah I think it's any, anybody who is exposed to a lot of things you realize that there's amazing people out there and 
everybody's talents are different because I am exposed to so many different things. I'm, I'm like never the expert, you know, cause I, yeah, I do get to dabble in a lot of things. I meet amazing founders who are experts in what they do. I think that's also a nice way to stay humble is if you're just hanging out with smart people who are building the future, then like hats off to them. I don't know. I guess if, if anybody has a chance to, you know, I guess if I were to distill this down into like a, a so what for any listeners, it's, you know, don't be af- afraid of a unique opportunity because it could lead to something else. All of those kind of fun facts that you mentioned, and they all started with something smaller mm-hmm. and led to something else and to something else. And, and, and so don't be afraid of the opportunities because it could become something big. And I, I guess I'll wrap that comment up by saying what we are doing in the, the Cortado Ventures existence is in some ways a culmination of all of these weird little journeys and accomplishments or experiences and failures. You know, I don't, I don't list my failures in LinkedIn. There's not a section for that, but there's lots of those. And I, I, I think if it weren't for that, that mindset of being willing to try new things, I wouldn't have gotten here. And this is like the best thing I've ever done. Wow. So, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously with what you're doing with raising capital and getting funding, there's obviously your approach to it. So I want you to kind of talk about your investment categories or your investment criteria. Like how are you onboarding people considering that you are have, you have this large diversity of different inputs and different values throughout the years. But again, that goes into growth. So what are you looking for in the criteria for these investments? Mm-hmm. So broadly speaking, stage sector and geography, but just describe what those are. The stage would be mostly seed, which again is, is post-product pre-revenue. So right around that sweet spot. Geography, mid-continent, but to describe what that is, that's Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, Colorado, New Mexico. Or if somebody can't remember that, then just look at a map and every state that touches Oklahoma is, is the mid-continent. And it didn't mean that the CEO has to live in one of those zip codes, but it does mean that what you're building has a strong customer base here because our connections, you know, our careers, our network and our know-how that's here. And that's where we can be meaningful and, and give an unfair advantage to companies. The sectors, I'll give three categories and then break it down. First is industry 4.0, which think of where digital technology meets the built environment. So think of like AI and refineries. Mm. You know, so energy, logistics, supply chain, the real world, but using technology to improve processes. Second category is future of work. That would be areas like enterprise software, workflow automation, more specifically like fintech, insurtech. And then the third and final category is life sciences. That would be biotech, medical devices, and healthcare. You know, there's, and we have different people that, that lead these different areas on our team, but those are, the, the three broad categories that I think if somebody's trying to understand, are we a good fit? Then that's a great start if, if somebody's innovating in those areas. So, I mean, based upon the area that you just said, it sounds like there's a lot of analytical data that goes into that. So I want you to kind of talk about when you were the statement that's on your website, you guys invest in ambitious growth fo- focused companies. Where does analytical data fall into that, that, that equation? Yeah. It, it was funny because in startups, there's, it's difficult to be analytical because there's so little to go off of. And so much of, of building innovative technologies is going outside of the box and, and going more with your gut. 
you know, it, it would drive like a banker crazy, you know, because we don't, we don't have like lots of financials uh, to go off of. But we do a lot of work. We do financial analysis, both broadly in terms of understanding where a market is headed. Mm-hmm. And if a certain subsector ha- has a growth opportunity, but then also we'll exercise that analytical aspect when we look at a company specifically. And so we'll, we'll dig in and uh, try to understand what is the ROI for that technology. That's actually, that's a, that's a big one is trying to quantify the ROI for that, for the customers of that technology. Cause if there's not an easily articulated ROI, then everything else doesn't really matter. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and sometimes it, you know, it, it can be difficult. It can be difficult to, to, to do because if you're inventing a new product category, then the best ROI come up with is just whatever the nearest substitute is. And, and so I would, th- I would say anybody who's interested in venture capital, there's a heavy dose of analytical, but also qualitative. And I think that's pretty exciting for a lot of people that are kind of left brain and right brain. You know, you get to exercise both and what we do. So, I mean, if you're talking to someone right now and they're stepping into one of those spaces, just say they're a fintech startup and they're a founder, what words of wisdom do you have for them to kind of help them understand on how to kind of position their company ideally to get into a Series A funding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they're, if, if like the next round of funding is Series A and they've, you know, recently done a seed or, or um, that's the path they're on in this market, you really got to get to two million dollars ARR, you know, annual recurring revenue before you really are in the sweet spot for Series A. And fund rounds are taking longer to to come together, so it's now becoming more common and accepted to have a small insider round, kind of a bridge round that has a discount to the next equity round. That's a, a great technical solution to buy time and to ensure that you don't run out of runway. Because if, if you only have six months of runway and you're going out for a series A, it's, it's not going to work. I mean, so you're, people are going to see that there's not, that, that you're going to be at the very tail end of, of your runway and the round's only going to be like halfway put together. So that's just some kind of tactical advice for sure. Maybe a little bit. Another piece of advice would be to show that you can do repeat sales. It's one thing to land a customer one time, but show us that there's an increase in average contract value. Or increase in term or both. And, and so show us that customers are coming back. They're referring others. And then lastly, I mean, be able to illustrate that positive trajectory. I and mean, that's kind of the easiest one. I mean, just be able to show revenue growth and spend the middle's first two are, are, are a little bit less obvious. And so I think that would be some more tactical advice for somebody looking for that next round. So this person is working with you, right? And I think this this is kind of like the elephant in the room for people that don't really understand how funding works, right? If to say you're doing a, a equity raise and or you're doing a funding raise, and to say that's two point five million, how does that two point five million kind of be broken down? Because obviously you're doing the service, you're going to have to essentially get paid for that service. The company is going to need some of that capital to then grow and expand, but there's other expenses as well. So can you kind of like? break down the diversification of like that $2 million that may come in and, and where that money can mm-hmm. go. Um, so, and the way that we at venture capital firm get, gets paid is actually taking a fee out of the fund. And so 
And so in other words, that doesn't impact the company. So once we give a company the money, then that's theirs. They don't, they're, they're not paying us for any services. There, there might be some investors that operate a little bit differently, but that I would say that's not the rule. We do offer free executive coaching to anybody who wants it. It's free for the first year. And then if they want to keep doing it, then it's, it's a, it's a, another party, but we, we cover the expenses for the first year. But, but by and large, you know, if we, if we're, once we wire that money, it's, it's truly theirs and there's a budget that they've shown us and they're going to try to stick to it. But in startup land, things change rapidly, but a typical use of funds would be roughly half in development, you know, software, hardware, whatever technical engineering development and half on sales. And, and that would be, you know, hiring, you know, two or three people on both sides. So it's not unusual for us to see a company hire like three to six or more people after that, that investment and to give them 18 months of runway. And they'll really look at it as there's a product roadmap. There's a certain amount of development. There's a certain amount of sales that a single person can do. And I think a good founder will calculate that over 18 months, including it being a ramp and increasing. And then that will determine how much money they raise and that'll be how the, the, the funds will be used. It is not common for an investment at that stage to be used to recap out earlier investors or to retire debt. That sometimes comes up and there are situations where that's okay, but it is not common and usually not desirable for an investment at, at this stage, at a seed stage to be used to recap or retire debt. Yeah. I mean, so I think that's what, what a founder can, can expect, but as far as how, we cover our overhead that comes out of our investors funds is how we kind of cover our overhead. Gotcha. So pretty much you're looking at getting a percentage come coming out of that upfront. So, I mean, with that, you're saying that like, like the last statement that you made as far as like dealing with the, the investors, right. And also dealing with, with the funds and you're, you're giving them the money and they have to kind of figure things out on their own. Is there another phase of general coaching once they get that capital and they go to say maybe 12 months and things this say are maybe at 80% of capacity to where expected growth was supposed to be at a hundred percent. Do you guys then step in and help them again? Or you guys kind of just step back and kind of wait to see if they want another series race. Mm -hmm. We certainly try to help whenever asked and whenever needed. And there's always other investors around as well. And so it's, it's, you know, we're never the only investors and, and different investors have different roles and proclivities. We in particular will be involved on the board, whether at a board seat or as an observer. We may be involved in that coaching capacity. And so our partners at Magellan Executive Partners have coaches and they work with these founders. And you don't want to ever be surprised. I mean, if, if, if things aren't going the right trajectory, you know, hopefully you see it many months in advance. And then you can start to have that discussion, you know, six months ahead of kind of the drop dead date of does, does in, you know, one of, one of three things needs to change. Either we need to raise some more money or cut expenses or rethink how we're selling or some blend of the three. And, you know, if, if we're doing our job on the board and if, if the founders and the leadership, you know, are, are keeping up with their communication and, and just have a transparent line of communication, then you'll see that coming, you know, have those conversations, you'll be able to, to react in time. And, but yeah, we are involved to the extent that we're tracking that 
mm-hmm. we're asking those questions or we're providing advice when asked. And um, so it really is a two-way discussion o- over time as opposed to kind of the, the oh crap moment of, hey, we got two months left to run away. What do we do? Gotcha. Gotcha. And the other thing that you had brought up was like, obviously paying off debt. I want to kind of put this equation and play devil's advocate here, right? So let's say someone put in a hundred thousand on, on this particular company and that hundred thousand was, was based upon, they would get that return of investment at an increase of a particular percent at the seed round or maybe at the series A. And then like what you said was like, you know, you, you would not advise them to kind of pay that out. Would you then advise them to say, well, maybe give them more of an equity share at that point in time mm-hmm. instead of giving them the actual capital? How, how, how would that work for yeah. someone that's more advanced in that situation? Yeah. So that, that in that case, it would, it would convert to equity. And so often you'll see um, convertible debt, convertible note that uh, converts to equity upon a funding round. And, and there's, you know, if, if anybody's wondering kind of anything tactical out there that they can refer to, I'd encourage them to go to the NVCA, the National Venture Capital Association website. They have great templates for this. So even somebody who isn't ready to spend money on lawyers can just see what is, what is a convertible note look like. But that, that is the instrument whereby somebody, an angel or a founder can contribute capital that will then later convert to equity. Very cool. So with that, like obviously you have a breadth of information and knowledge. You've been in the game for a period of time, even though you're saying that it's less than five years. It seems like you've been in the game 20 something years, right? How does someone get in contact with you if they want to reach out and start to get onboarded or learn more about you and your company? Yeah, so our website is just cortado.ventures. Mm-hmm. There's no .com, no .anything, just cortado.ventures. And uh, we are are pretty thorough about publishing our content. We like to be an open book on what we're thinking available to founders, you know, uh, we have a one minute form where you can submit basic information about your company and get really quick feedback on whether this is a potential fit. And so let's talk or not a fit. And here's where else to, to go. We also publish a lot of things on, on LinkedIn and medium and on both that and on, on Twitter X, you can find us as just Cortado Ventures. Luckily there's no other Cortado Ventures out there. I'm out there as Nathaniel Harding or Nathaniel Harding OKC as in Oklahoma city. And so, yeah, we, we definitely encourage, I mean, email is the best. Uh, and so, you know, my email is just nharding at cortado.ventures and we'll always get you routed the, 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 the correct way. And so we have people on our team that, you know, are responsible for making sure that we can give, give timely responses and, and to give feedback. If somebody's an investor and wants to invest in, you know, our fund, then uh, it's the same pathway, you know, reach out that, that email address or through the website as well. So, I mean, with this journey to where you are currently right now and considering that your original education was not down this particular path. And yes, you've probably got some hands on help from like your your ancestors and your dad from like the oil side of it. But I I would think and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there had to have been some kind of reading of books on this journey to kind of get you to a certain point. Mm -hmm. I want you to kind of make a recommendation for books for someone that's essentially looking more so in the space of funding or capital equity raises, what books helped you to become who you are? Yeah. Um, let's see. I think I have some that are just off camera, but go off memory. Brad Feld is a, is a great author. I mean, he's a great investor, but he he shares his his learnings through lots of content, including books. And so anything by Brad Feld, Jason Calacanis, he has a book, I think it's just called Angel, but if you 
I got close enough to where Google search will get you there. But Jason Calacanis, Angel, Angel Investing is 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 similar to venture capital in some ways. But if a person is thinking about getting on this path, there's kind of a natural transition from you know to Angel to and then venture capital. And so I would say if you think this is interesting, try being an Angel first. Yeah, so definitely you know read that book before you jump into that. Those are two great ones. Are two great authors in that category that I would definitely encourage. Um, but otherwise, I mean, venture capital is changing all the time. I mean, it, it literally is, is the art of the new. We're always investing in, in the future. So sometimes the best content is whatever's online since it's, it's, you know, more reactive or, or, you know, more dynamic. And I'd really just go down the rabbit hole on, on medium. You can even start with, with our, you know, medium page, Cortado Ventures and look at who, who we follow and, and look at other kind of related content. Because you'll see a lot of people that share their thoughts on the future of AI, for example, and how AI is, is transitioning beyond just being content creation and really influencing the real world. So the, that's those are some good resources as well. Wow. So that, that kind of leads me into like like tech. I mean, obviously you're big into tech and, and that's kind of like your core focus. Are there any particular softwares that you use on a day-to-day that if you didn't have access to, you would not be able to do what you do? Some, I mean, I'm, I'm a chat GPT user, so that's definitely out there. Stuff like Calendly, super easy. I mean, it's in, in VC land, everybody uses Calendly, but outside of that, more and more people are using it. So it's just simple scheduling. I mean, you know, DocuSign, I'm in, I'm in DocuSign all the time. I'm in DocSend as well. And, um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of some other things. I mean, we have lots of tools that we use just for running our business. So if anybody is in the business of, managing a portfolio, you know, we use Tactic, T-A-C-T-Y-C, and that's a, a great program that you, know, you can use for portfolio allocation. And then Affinity is a great tool. It's a CRM that's really custom built for, for venture capital. But yeah, I'm actually always kind of playing around with different AI tools, you know, content related or um, productivity related. And, and so I think, you know, trying to automate more things is where I spend spend some time. So try a few things, but still looking for for whatever can automate some things that I do on a regular basis. Yeah, I always say automation is definitely your friend. And I think people that are scared of automation, they don't realize that that's when you pretty much get phased out because you're not looking into what technology is going in, in that direction. So it kind of leads me to some a bonus question. And I think this this question, I think for you would be definitely interesting considering that you come from such a long legacy of entrepreneurs. But if you had an opportunity to spend 24 hours with anyone, and this person could be someone that you've met, never met, someone from your past, someone that's dead, someone that may be alive, who would that person be and why? Ulysses S. Grant, hmm. partly because he has a similar name to yours, coincidentally. It's actually my favorite biography. I love biographies. That's my favorite. A lot of people don't know me. They, people recognize him from being the uh, you know union general and, and then president. But in his late thirties, he was like a like a clerk at his family's like convenience store, and or like his early thirties. Then by his late thirties, he was the victor of the civil war and president. It's just a totally like bonkers story of like. I don't know, rags of riches or just total nobody to like the most powerful human on earth. And, and I think that would be really cool to kind of just be around, like be able to pick that brain, you know? So yeah, that's, that's my pick. So let's, let's spin off of that. I mean, obviously you've had dozens of 
highly achieved, you know, accomplishments, right? If you could choose just one of them, which one would you say is your most significant outside of like your kids or your wife? Mm -hmm. I'd say starting um, co-founding Cortado Ventures. I mean, I, I, which, you know, because I think it is really such a unique outcome of all of my life experiences and it is uniquely impactful. It's this amazing mashup of getting to exercise my you know, business experience, but also just creativity and passion for building something new that has a great impact in the region. You know, when we have success as investors, it actually has tons of great outcomes for creating new millionaires and diversifying the economy. I mean, so it, it scratches all my itches, you know, like I used to have to do business things to, you know, really feel fulfilled in business and do civic things to feel fulfilled there. I like accidentally found a way to make it all just like one thing. So I mean, truly proud of, of being able to uh, co-found Cortado Ventures. Very cool. Very cool. So going into closing, I just have essentially two more questions, right? One of them is more of a playful question and, and realizing that you used to like to ride bikes a lot with the kids. Have you had an opportunity to bring your, your baby boy and ride a bike with him as much as you did with your, your, your two girls? I certainly have tried. He, uh, he's not super interested in things outdoors or athletic things, you know, uh, but I, I've been trying to get him to ride more. We used to do this thing where it's like ride one block. Okay. And now ride two blocks. I think we're up to like 18. He wants to ride his bike to school, which is like 20 blocks, but it's also, you know, you have, you have to deal a little bit with traffic. And so you need to be a very competent bike rider before you, you do that. So we're working on it and it's, it's definitely not for lack of trying. Hmm. Very cool. So I, I think this is definitely an insightful episode. I mean, I think we definitely broke down funding in, in, in a unique way. I think that anyone that's listening to this particular episode, this is a very fruitful episode because again, funding is essentially the seed to becoming an entrepreneur. If you don't have the capital or if you don't want to do it from the grassroots, that's just one of the methods, right? So in closing, I would like to give you an opportunity. I know you also kind of recently started a podcast as well. I like to give whoever I'm interviewing an opportunity to become the host of the Boston Gage podcast and I become your guest. So now my show is yours and I'm your guest. Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask me? Yeah. I mean, so thank you for the opportunity. Again, this has been an amazing experience. And I mean, just, just your journey and like, did you know, did you think, did you ever speculate that you would be a, the host of a wildly successful podcast? in your early journey as, you know, as an entrepreneur? No, no idea whatsoever. I mean, I always knew from probably 2000 going into college that I was going to form some kind of corporation. And I did that that year. And I always knew I was going to be in some kind of relative business, but I didn't know that I would be even good at what I'm doing right now. And realizing that this is my core passion and also my legacy. I had no idea in the early days. Who would you spend a day with? Wow. I mean, there's, there's so many different people. And I've asked that question. I've heard so many. So like, if you're asking me that right now, who would I like to spend 24 hours with right now in today's world? I would probably go back to the original founder of IBM. And if I remember correctly, his story was kind of like stage coaches and, and it was like a bunch of drama and other things, but essentially like what he went through to start IBM and what IBM has become, obviously like battling with Apple and the big blue, like just being from his standpoint, I would like to kind of go back in time and sit down with him and see everything unfold and see what his opinion is of where the company was and where the company is today. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, I, I, at some point, a, a a scrappy, like the scrappy small guy, and then he became the behemoth, and then Steve Jobs, you know, uh, 
who who are you more like or who if you had to be one who would it be bill gates or steve jobs wow it's, it's, it's debatable because I, I respect both of them for different reasons but from the creativity standpoint and being equal creative and equal analytical i would definitely say steve now i'm actually reading his biography right now so <laughs> don't tell me yeah. how it is uh no yeah. Yeah, Steve, he's an asshole, but I mean, uh, <laughs> besides him being an asshole, I mean, I think not rightfully so, but I think he had vision and he wanted that vision to become accomplished. I think there was probably better ways, better ways of doing it or going about it. But I think internally, he probably knew his time was short. I mean, like the fact that he died as young as he did, it was just kind of like, did you know that? Like, why did you do so much so hard, so fast? And then just, you know, pretty much be gone. I actually read an interesting book recently. I wish I could remember the name of it. Hopefully I'll describe it well enough to where Google will get a Google hit. But it actually really had an interesting hypothesis that certain types of mental illness actually have a higher probability of of that person being like an outstanding breakthrough leader. So in other words, like the the most like visionary, like the the biggest leaders, a lot of whom you wouldn't guess. A hundred years ago, people, people weren't diagnosing certain mental illnesses. But with retrospective and historical documentation, you can surmise some people's mental illnesses. And there's a certain amount of crazy that actually gives rise to a certain level of genius as opposed to being in spite of. So do you think it's just more so crazy or I also think it's part crazy and part being on the spectrum? I mean, I think being yeah. you can kind of have the viewpoints of the world around you in an articulated way that the average person cannot see or comprehend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it and. You know, it, it, there there is a certain level of like, um, you know, uh, if if you kind of like you know, wild swings, kind of you know, one way or the other. I mean, the it can be extremely productive, like breakthrough, you know, episodes of of creativity. But then there's like the crash on the other side, and you know, so I know anybody who deals with that like probably wishes they they don't have that. But it's also it's interesting how how much sometimes you actually do see like amazing success stories that almost kind of like work through and leverage that. And that's almost like part of, you know, being on a spectrum is maybe actually part of their story and not, and not even just like, Oh, I did it in spite of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think whoever's on the spectrum that knows they're on a spectrum, I'll say embrace it because it's definitely a superpower and it, it gives you kind of a leg up advantage. Once you realize that you have that leg up advantage. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Well, I definitely appreciate you being on the show today. I think it was definitely a hell of an episode. I think we covered a lot. Hopefully I surprised you with some of the things that I did some research on to kind of, you know, bring out your personal stuff. So again, I definitely commend you for what you're doing and I look forward to following you and seeing what you're going to do in the next five to 10 years. Well, thanks. It's been a great experience. Really appreciate it. Great. SA Grant, over and out. Thank you for tuning in to another empowering episode of Boss Uncaged, where we've explored the ins and outs of entrepreneurship, harnessed the power of digital marketing, and embraced the journey of building impactful brands. As we wrap up this episode, I want to express my deepest gratitude to our incredible guests, listeners, and the entire Boss Uncaged community. Your dedication to unlocking your potential and conquering the business realm has made this podcast a dynamic hub of inspiration and knowledge. Throughout the Boss Uncaged journey, we've delved into exclusive interviews, shared strategies, and celebrated success stories from founders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and executives. It's been a roller coaster of insights, lessons, and triumphs, and I hope you found valuable takeaways to apply in your own entrepreneurial endeavors. Whether we've tackled challenges together, explored the vast landscape of diverse media platforms, or uncovered the secrets to dominating in business, your commitment to the Boss Uncaged spirit has been truly inspiring. 
If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, like leave a positive five-star review and share the Boss Uncaged podcast to continue elevating the business game. The Boss Spirit runs free and we're always ready to amplify your entrepreneurial journey with extra resources at bossuncaged.com. Before we sign off, remember that Boss Uncaged is more than just a podcast. It's the heartbeat of the Boss Uncaged educational network and omni-media. It's a vision brought to life by the uncaged boss in all of us. Thank you for being part of this incredible ride. Stay hungry, stay focused, and keep conquering the business realm. Subscribe, like, and share now to keep the Boss Uncaged spirit alive. Boss Uncaged.